You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Fresh for your ears, tell everybody. The new podcast from the producers of Destination Freedom Black Radio Days comes the eclectic. Interviews with difference makers, artists, authors, bold thinkers, people we love who get stuff done. The Eclectic is produced by Donnie L. Betts and No Credits Production, LLC. Our guest is Harold Fields. For years, Harold has led conversations in race with the Tuesday Race Group. He works for reparations for former enslaved Africans. He advises on EEI issues for organizations. His list of involvement in the Colorado community and national community is far too long to list in our conversation. We asked Harold to join us to speak about the Tulsa race ride and Black Wall Street. We hope you enjoy. Hello, Harold. How are you doing? Thank you, Donnie. I'm very happy to be talking to you. Well, I'm happy to have you. I'm, uh, I'm always honored when I can be in the same space as you, and uh, because you always impart so much knowledge whenever we talk. Uh, whatever the subject is, you always know a lot about it. So I'm just honored that you be with us uh, in this new format we call The Eclectic. It's been a great journey of collaboration for over a number of years. I agree. Yes, yes. So uh, let's just jump right into it. You know, this year there was a lot of celebrations. There's been films. There's been uh, newspaper articles. There's been podcasts like myself about Black Wall Street, the Tulsa race ride. You have a real intimate view of this incident that happened in 1921. Let's talk about that. Let's first talk about Tulsa is your home, correct? That's right. I grew up, was born and raised in Tulsa. And then, um, what, would you mind sharing what years those were? It was 1946, so I'll be 75 this month. Youngster. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were growing up, what did people talk about this incident at all? Not at all, Donnie. Um, it was not a topic that I heard about until I was out of college. And I first learned about it at a reunion, a high school class reunion. And we had a guest speaker, Don Ross, who was the state representative. And Don was responsible for getting the Tulsa, at the name, at that time, was the Tulsa Race Ride Commission put together. And he was a older brother of one of my classmates. And he talked about that at a banquet we had. And this was the first time I heard about it. Wow. Wow. And I will tell you that not only it was the first time I heard about it, but many of my classmates whose parents were survivors didn't learn about it, uh, one of them, until her dad was on TV talking on a documentary and <laughs> somebody mm. called her up and says, turn on the TV. Your dad's talking about the race riot. And I, I, I found out just recently that I was one of those people that my father was living and, and working in Tulsa. Um, and he was 18 years old when this happened. And wow. he never talked about it with me as well. But he did talk about it with some of my older cousins. Okay. Okay. So during the Tulsa Race Massacre, which occurred over 18 hours on May 31st 
uh, to June 1st, 1921, a white mob attacked residents and homes and businesses in the predominantly black Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, Oklahoma. It still remains one of the worst incidents of racial violence in U.S. history. It all was started by a lie. And you sent me most recently um, a newspaper article about that, what fueled a lot of this, uh, this, um, this race riot and massacre that happened in 1921. Can you describe that, that newspaper article? That article was published in the Tulsa Tribune newspaper. And it was, uh, I think the head, headline said, Mad Negro for Attacking White Girl. Yes. And, and later on, the very next day, um, there was an editorial that was published in the same newspaper uh, saying that there was going to, be, going to be a lynching. And so, of course, what had happened uh, was far from um, somebody attacking a white girl. Dick Rowland was a shoeshine, uh, shoeshiner, teenage shoeshiner. And uh, there was only one place in downtown Tulsa where Negroes, at the time we were all on call, were allowed to go to the bathroom. That was on the top floor of the, of the Drexel building. And he, he got on the elevator, and Sarah Page was the elevator operator. Sarah was also a, a teenager as well at the time. And I think uh, you, you can remember in the old days, elevator op- elevators didn't have buttons to push. They, they had something like a cage door that would be closed, and, and then they had to have an operator. And, and the operator had to be very skilled at stopping it at the right place right. Um, and, or, or moving it again. And those movements could be kind of uh, jerky. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that uh, there was a jerky movement, and Dick stumbled and and uh, bumped into her, and, and she she screamed or cried out, and and then he ran away, and, um, and they arrested him the next day. So he didn't attack her at all, but the uh, the person who was watching uh, saw Dick run out. One of the clerks there uh, reported that uh, it attacked her. Of course. In, 19, in the 1920s, and even beyond, and before, uh, attacking a, a white girl, white woman, meant rape. That's how everybody interpret, interpreted that. Right. Yeah. So, anyhow, I mean, this, this newspaper article was, uh, the publisher was Jenkins Lloyd-Jones. And um, in... In an interesting twist of fate, I had a Tulsa Tribune paper route when I was a teenager. Wow. And the editor of the newspaper at that time was Jenkins' son, Richard Lloyd-Jones. And Richard Lloyd-Jones happened to be a customer of my dad. My dad owned a plumbing company called Fields Plumbing Company, and he was one of our customers. Hmm. And I was in his house, uh, in and out of his house, doing things, collecting money and working with my dad, um, having no knowledge that it was his father who instigated this riot. It really put the the, the, the fuel on, on, the, on, the, on the flame to yes. cause that. Yes. And also, um, that house is in a very nice part of uh, Tulsa, 
um, was designed by their famous cousin, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright. So <laughs> that, wow. that's, uh, that's a quite a connection there. there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 But of course, my father had to know of this connection, um, but he never talked about it to me. Hmm. He, he had somewhat of an attitude. You got to move on. You got to keep going forward. This is your father. So, my father. My father is Abraham Fields. Yes. So, uh, Dad, uh, when, when I grew up, um, Dad had formed a plumbing company. I think one of the pictures that I sent you was a picture of, of almost a dozen men. Yes. And those, those, that was Fields Plumbing Company. And they looked like a bunch of bankers <laughs> in, that, <laughs> in that picture. It's a fantastic and picture. He, uh, my dad was the one in the upper left-hand corner, but he trained his brothers, his nephews, um, and, and cousins to be in the business and help them get started. So uh, at one point in time, we had at least a dozen, he had at least a dozen men working for him. So that, that was part of the example of, of um, the richness of, uh, of Black Wall Street. Um, but that was after the, the, the massacre. He, he was part of the reconstruction. Dad, Dad had told um, a cousin of mine who used to work with him uh, that they may have burned it down, but we built it right back up. And that was, like you said, that was some of the beauty and resilience of the black community at that time and still exists today. Um, the, the, the part of Greenwood, part of Oklahoma, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma was called Greenwood, but most of the black residents were about 10,000 people. And that, yeah. uh, you know, the growth of that city was fueled by oil. And, but it still was a very segregated city. Uh, my understanding is it's still pretty segregated today too. Um, yeah. But, you just talk. You spoke about the photograph, and I hope I can put that up on the website so people can can see that um, from the podcast. Beautiful picture. Um, but people owning their own business, making their own way. That was, I hear, part of the reason why when the mob got so incensed, they wanted to burn it down because they were jealous of the success of the black people in that town, uh, especially. It was ec- economic envy. It was a large part. Yes. Of what was going on because uh, in, in the minds of uh, white people uh, at that time and maybe even today, um, these black folk didn't deserve to have uh, the wealth and the possessions and uh, the success that, that, that they had. But people had been drawn, black folk had been drawn to Oklahoma years before um, because Oklahoma was at one point in time, or, or before 1900, was thought, considered to be the pos- possibility of making it an all-black state mm-hmm. and, a, and a place where blacks could migrate to um, to, to get away from uh, the, the black codes and, and the horrible things that had happened at, after the end of Reconstruction. So Tulsa wasn't an all-black town, but, but there were over 50 all-black towns in Oklahoma. And my parents came from two of those all-black towns. My dad um, came from Vernon, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And my mother came from Rennersville. And Rennersville um, was the place where John Hope Franklin, the noted historian, was born. And they were just two months apart. They were classmates. Mm. And um, so, 
she we grew up knowing his family and, and his relatives and um so there's there's that connection as well so uh, i'm glad you mentioned the, the um the other black towns people know Aboli, oklahoma but not all the other resurgence that were in the state of oklahoma when it came to that time period 1900 and a little beyond there was a big right. insurgence led by, you know, quote-unquote black exodusters uh, coming to Oklahoma and selling in Oklahoma, building those towns, you know, you know Langston, Bowley, uh, you mentioned the, yeah. the two towns that your parents are from. Um, so that had that um, history and tradition of building, building their own. So um, <clears throat> I think that what you said, that was the envy, the economic envy that led a lot of this, this ride to happen too. Um Interesting note that people should know about um, Dick Rowland. You mentioned that he was a young man that uh, uh, was stumbled into Sarah Page was her name, the elevator operator uh, that caused this. Uh, and um, the the newspaper that led to really the ride. But, you know, that was what I really found out from looking at the history some years ago and then a lot more recently is, you know, the group of armed black men who was there to try to protect him. Uh, first there was yeah. 25, then maybe as much as 75, 75, but there were at least 1500 white men who were armed as well, who um, were going to take him out and hang him. Um, and so people always have the assumption that, you know, we just lay down and let things happen. But this, this was not the case. No. It was just outgunned and outnumbered. That's what it really boiled down to. So, And these were uh, black veterans of, uh, from World War I who were determined to protect uh, Dick Rowland. Uh, Tulsa had a history of a year or two before of um, people being taken out of the jail and, and, and hung. And uh, they knew that. <laughs> but they would even do that to white people. Mm. And so uh, they were determined not to let this fate happen to Dick Rowland. And they went out and offered their services uh, to, the, to the sheriff. And uh, he told them, to, nope, we don't need your help. Go away. We, I got this. Um, <laughs> and then right afterwards, uh, people were being, white folks were gathering, and, and some of them got to be deputized. And and uh, they even broke into, uh, help police help them break into gun shops and take guns and get ammunition uh, and, and be ready yeah. to uh, to attack. You know, there, they, there were, uh, there was a coordinated effort. Um, there was a, a little skirmish. Uh, initially and then it got quiet uh, but then uh, the white people had amassed by the thousands and waited for a signal a, a big uh, whistle went off I don't know 3, 4 o'clock in the morning next morning and that was the whistle for them to attack and you know there were machine gun bombings uh, they, they, they destroyed churches um, and they even uh, had airplanes uh, that were dropping dynamite, shooting from the airplane, and dropping flaming turpent turpentine balls on homes. Uh, so it was the first time that American citizens uh, had bombs dropped on them. It happened right in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. Wow. And this was over an area about 35 city blocks, correct? 
That's correct. That's correct. So you said you didn't hear about this and didn't really didn't learn about this until you were in college. Um, after after you were in college, about, about fifteen years after graduating from college. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And you know, part of that was um, you think about people who went through the Holocaust. Holocaust uh, some of them didn't want to talk about this, but in, in Tulsa. Uh, the, the, there was a lot of trauma associated with it, and but but many of the perpetrators were still in power, still right. in control, and they had put out warnings: if you talk about this, we'll do it again. Hmm. And they made a concerted effort to erase this from the history, uh, from the newspaper, the the the, the uh, front page newspapers, that original copies. Of, were were destroyed and taken cut those pages were cut out and uh, when there were anniversaries of the event 10 15 20 years later they never talked about it in the Tulsa papers uh even though this was the biggest thing that had happened in America at that time right. but it was it was a distinct effort to 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 get rid of that and so um i don't think our parents wanted us to grow up with that kind of fear. And that's one of the reasons why they didn't talk about it very much. Yeah. That, that trauma that they went through, they didn't want that to be their legacy of living with you and their children, seems like. That's right. That's right. And so you, you can understand the fruits of that um, in terms of the prosperous neighborhood that got re- rebuilt, even though there was no insurance money, there was no government claims that were honored, um, um, none of that happened. Uh, so people were industrious enough, entrepreneurial enough, probably didn't pronounce that right, entrepreneurial enough to, uh, to, to recreate and to make it even bigger and better than it was before. Beautiful. Uh, and that's the, the world that I grew up in, in which... The money turned over within the black community dozens of times before it left. Now, part of that, of course, was because of segregation. Yes. We almost had no choice. But, but, but it fed us. It, 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 it nurtured us. And we had great schools, great educational opportunities uh, there. My mother was a, a teacher at Dunbar Elementary School. Uh, she was a speech uh, and drama teacher when I was growing up. Um, and we had schools with names like Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Charles S. Johnson Elementary, uh, George Washington Carver Junior High School, Booker T. Washington High School. And I, and I will tell you that we had teachers who just poured our heart, their hearts into us. We had the best um, science teacher in the state of Oklahoma at, at, at our high school. We had the best math teacher in the state of Oklahoma. Mm. Recognized and award, awarded that way. Um, and, um, and and now, that high school, Booker T. Washington, is recognized as the best high school in the state of Oklahoma. Wow. Wow. So it, it, there's, there's a tradition that, that, that came out of of Black Wall Street that still lives on today uh, uh, educationally. And uh, and it's kind of a, 
shock to me sometimes to to encounter um, young white people who say, "Oh yeah, I graduated from Booker T. Washington as well," because that is <laughs> that's not the way it was when I was there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, things changed a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So part of the why is. I think it's so amazing that uh, it was rebuilt after what this happened. There was all kind of laws that was trying to be put in place. You mentioned that those people that a lot of those people involved in it were still around and in power. There was something called the discrimination ordinance that went out. But I was reading the research of a gentleman named B.C. Franklin, um, who's an attorney uh, from Oklahoma himself, too, was part of that move. Uh, just before the massacre, and he helped to try to strike down some of those laws. Did your family have any um, a connection with him? Would you say, what was that question again? So the question was, um, as part of the rebuilt, your father owning the uh, uh, the business that he had and built a great business up. This is not too many years after the, you know, 20 years or so after the massacre. I said there were other people who had... Um, helped in this resurgence. I was a gentleman by the name of B.C. Franklin, who was an attorney yeah, yeah. that helped kind right. of strike down these laws that right. that were keeping people from rebuilding. I asked if your family had a connection with uh, B.C. Franklin. Well, <laughs> we certainly did, because B.C. Franklin was John O. Franklin's father. Got you. And okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so so, so my, my mom knew him, and I'm sure my, my dad may have worked with, with him, uh, but he was uh, long gone by the time I was I was a kid. Uh, but there were other attorneys who lived up the street from us. My dad helped build his house. Um, and, um, I, you know, it was, it was very interesting. When looking at the documentaries and reading the books that had been published, I kept seeing pictures of people that I knew mm. who were friends of my family. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and many of them, I didn't know that they were survivors, but uh, but I found out by looking at pictures on on walls and pictures on on the, on the back of pianos of people, uh, and I began to understand that that my parents, especially my dad, was he, he wasn't a, a five year old kid. He he was eighteen. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so um, so he he knew a lot of these folks. And uh, a lot of them were customers of ours uh, years later, uh, the hotels and things like that. And um, so, yes, we, we, had a, we had a connection to the Franklin as well. Now, you mentioned also that um, <clears throat> survivors. Um, can, we, can you speak on that a bit, the survivors that you knew and your relationship to them and how they... Mm-hmm kind of talked about what happened once they began to talk about what happened? Well, um, one of them was uh, Rosa Davis Skinner. She was uh, one of my Sunday school teachers. And I've seen her in numerous documentaries Mm. uh, talking about uh, her experience. But, of course, this is not something she ever talked about as I grew up. And uh, her her grandson is a good friend of mine, and, and uh, you know, who became a teacher at the at the, at the school, at Booker T. himself. Um, uh, Joe Burns uh, was um, 
the father of a, a good friend of mine, Joanna, and he's the one who was uh, on, on the commission, and uh, she didn't know about it until he was in, in a documentary. Uh, but, but interestingly enough, my best friend, Paul Alexander, his father, John Alexander, is a named plaintiff in Alexander v. Oklahoma. <laughs> and I'm in and out of the house. Paul and I were born 12 days apart. Uh, our mothers knew each other before, while they were pregnant. And so we, we've sort of been uh, joined before, before birth. And, um, and, and it, it was his dad um, who, was, who was the plaintiff in, in, the, in the case that actually went to the Supreme Court and, and then got denied there because of statute of limitations. He got defined in terms of loss of property. But, you know, I never thought that there was a statute of limitations on murder. Correct. Um, and uh, so, um, but, but that was a signal from uh, the highest court in the land that there was not going to be much of a legislative remedy for, for reparation and for and repairing the harm and the damage. Uh, that was the signal that there's going to have to be uh, legislated. Did I say, I said that wrong. There was a signal that there's not going to be a judicial remedy for this, but that there would probably have to be a legislative remedy for this problem. We're speaking with Mr. Harold Fields, who was born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're speaking about um, Black Wall Street and the Tulsa Race Massacre, uh, his personal recollection of individuals that he knew, still knows, and his parents' role in the renaissance uh, that lifted the community after this massacre, and uh, survivors that he knew. and just, just, It's just an amazing history of that era. You mentioned John Hope Franklin. I know that Cornell West um, went to Booker T. Washington High School. Is that correct? Am I, you know? Uh, no, Cornell um, and I, when we got together, um, found out that Cornell was born at Moton Hospital. He's born in the same hospital that I was born in. <laughs> and he was um, a toddler when his family moved from Tulsa to California. Okay. okay. But he would, but his grandfather was there, so he'd come back um, periodically in summer times and spend time with his grandfather, uh, who was a pastor of a, a Monroe Baptist Church there. So Reverend C.L. West. Yes. And... Um, but also, <laughs> I found out that Cornell's parents were married at my church, Paradise Baptist Church, um, the original Paradise, the, the one that, um, well, I guess it were three of them. One that got burned down, but then they rebuilt it. And uh, when I, as I grew up, um, I went to the rebuilt one. But then we built another one, and my dad helped build a new modern edifice mm. around 1960. Okay. Uh, but but Cornell's parents were married at uh, that, that second Paradise Baptist Church. Thank you. Thank you for correction. I misspoke there. I knew that was a connection um, to the city and to you, so I thank you so much for explaining that. Once again, it's amazing, those connections that you talked about. Um, I want to go now into your most recent visit there, Um to Tulsa, uh, as we know, there's been a lot of activity uh, from the state of Oklahoma, from the city itself, uh, in trying to find mass graves 
uh, of the citizens that were lost during that period. Can you describe what you uh, experienced when you went there on your most recent visit? The 100th commemoration was held uh, during the Memorial Day weekend because the event happened uh, on Memorial Day holiday uh, back in 1921. And it was was so touching for me to spend time with my some of my cousins visiting the graves of our, our, our relatives um, and then going to um, the site where they believe that there were mass graves for uh, coming out of the, uh, the massacre. And the city of Tulsa had, had finally, after 99 years, uh, the mayor finally agreed to allow uh, archaeologists to search and to dig to see if they could find any evidence of uh, mass graves, and, and they did find them. So um, on the last day that I was visiting in Tulsa, I went by the uh, the cemetery, uh, the one corner of the cemetery where they believed that there was evidence, and um, when I was standing there, there seemed to be a ritual. I imagine this must happen every day. But uh, there was a prayer. They would start the day with a prayer for the souls of those persons that they were searching for. And then when that was over, their hats went on. And I waited until they put their hats back on uh, to sort of respect. And that's when I took the picture. They had already opened up an area that they were going to be searching. And it was that day that they found 17 more bodies wow. right where I was standing. Mm. So it, it, it was, it felt like my ancestors and the ancestors of a known person were connected that day for me since I had just been a day or two before at the, at the cemetery for, for, my, for my relatives. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, yeah. who, 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 so, you know, Donnie, I want to say one other thing. Yes. Um, a couple of years ago, before the COVID pandemic uh, shut things down, my wife and I left, uh, took a drive from Denver here to go through uh, the South. And we went to 10 HBCUs and talked to administrators. And we went to the Lynching Museum and... Um, we walked over the Edmund Pettus Bridge when it was 103 degrees mm. a day. Um, it was about a 5,000-mile drive uh, to Little Rock and uh, just to South Carolina, just so many, many places. Yes. And and when we went to the lynching museum, of course, I'm, I'm looking at, the, at the columns with names for Oklahoma, and the, the biggest one, was for Tulsa County. Things were organized by county or parish in, um, at the museum. And Tulsa had dozens of names on it. And I was just kind of blown away. But then I looked more carefully, and the names all had the same date, May 31st, 1921. Oh, my God. And that was the first inclination that I had 
shot and killed, but probably lynched that day as well. Yes, yes, yes. That's why it's so important to to this uh, this dig to find out exactly if we can find those mass graves because you know the quote unquote official count was thirty six uh, people killed, twenty six black and ten white. But we know it. And of course, uh, there were people who were who were tossed into the Arkansas River. The Arkansas River goes right to right. Tulsa. Right. And um, those those would be bodies <laughs> that would be accounted for. Exactly. In many ways, sort of like bodies that were thrown over on the middle passage from the ships mm-hmm. would never be accounted for. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Let's talk about now another subject that you really passionate about and been working very hard about, especially related to this subject as well, too, uh, is that's rec- reparations. Can you talk yeah. about that work? Yes. Um, I, I'm now the chair chairman of two f- reparations funds. One of them is the Fund for Reparations that's housed at the, the Denver Foundation. And the other one is the Denver Black Reparations Council. And this came out of those years of running the Second Tuesday Race Forum. You know, for 23 years, I was involved with uh, facilitating a citywide dialogue on race and um, helping people make connections with each other, make connections to, to history with what's going on today, uh, learn a vocabulary build trust and uh, and there were a number of people in the group who discovered had discovered that their family had uh, owned enslaved persons and and we're at a point where they said I got to do something about it I have to take some action about this and they several of them got together and created an affinity group, reparations affinity group, at the Denver Foundation. And I consulted with them. I had been on the board at the Denver Foundation for six years. And um, they asked me to be chairman of the fund. And um, we made the decision that when we put out a request for applications for grants, there would be a group of African Americans who would be the ones who decided how that money would get used in the community to benefit and to help heal. And um, so that's why we created the Denver Black Reparations Council. That's the organization that will be able to make those decisions. But in addition, money from the Denver Foundation can only be given to 501c3 nonprofit organizations. But we know that in the black community, there are businesses, there are organizations that are not 501c3, um, community organizations, they're individuals, uh, and we didn't want them left out of this equation. We wanted to go beyond the bounds of philanthropy, even though philanthropy was going to be a major part of this of this effort. But we 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 sought and found a way to create an or a separate revenue stream to be able to address businesses, non-501c3 organizations. So um, we're we're just about ready to to roll out the carpet and and let the world know that we're here. And I guess 
by talking to you on the radio, <laughs> the word will be getting out now. Yes. We're, we're working on our website and uh, and have a have a group of uh, nine, eight of us who are been working for over a year to to prepare to, to, to do this work. What happens next, you think, in Tulsa? Well, uh, what would you like to see happen next in Tulsa? Well, there are there are there are some things um, that are in the process of happening right now. There is a a museum that is called Tulsa Rising that is right down to the uh, heart of uh, Deep Greenwood. We call it Deep Greenwood, uh, although. Greenwood goes, that's the southern end of Greenwood, where the riots actually, uh, and the massacre actually got started. But Greenwood goes for a mile and a half uh, north of there, and I grew up right right in the middle of, of that, that area. Um, I want your listeners to know that the Renaissance of Tulsa is, is, a, is something that needs to be ex- ex- explored more thoroughly so people understand um, that, that resilience and, and, and how people collaborated to, to make uh, an economy that uh, wasn't exactly capitalistic, but it was one that supported um, the residents there. Um, but then that got destroyed the second time by what we all know as urban urban renewal, and some of us call it urban removal. <laughs> and that's when Interstate 244, uh, it got put right down, right in the middle of uh, Deep Greenwood, and that was part of an interdispersal loop, which was designed sort of like the Los Angeles freeway system with spokes going out in different directions. And... <clears throat> And that cut Greenwood off, and and then they started buying up properties and letting it just lay fallow for 10, 15, 20 years. And that was forcing people out uh, of the neighborhood. So it was it was urban renewal in, in the 60s and 70s, actually the 70s is when it really got its really rolling, that, that came through and destroyed Greenwood. Again, wow. so I would like to <clears throat> to see uh, Greenwood recover from that. Um, it's it's more than just putting this museum there, which will tell the story, much like this museum of African American Museum in in, in Washington D.C. tells the story nationally, and places like um, the Lynching Museum and, and like the Underground uh, Railroad Museum in, in Cincinnati. These are destination places, and they they're hoping that uh, the Greenwood Rising would be a destination um, location to revitalize Denver. I mean Tulsa, <laughs> but but I'll tell you that it's in an area that now has been heavily gentrified. Yes, of course, and so. Yeah. It's not the black folk who are getting the benefit from all that traffic. Uh, it, 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 there are others who are who are newcomers and who have a, a, a financial interest because that was always the interest 
in destroying Greenwood in the first place. We get that get that land. It, it's valuable property. We should get it and and and, and claim it. And, but but we, we fought back and we didn't let them claim it, mm. even though they made it hard for us to rebuild. So I I would like to see um, Greenwood come alive again, and and more and more people are, are beginning to try to do some things uh, there. I, I will tell you one of the one of the things that was very disturbing was that um, last month, or a month before last, there were three living survivors, three living survivors of that massacre. Um, and $60 million or more had been raised to build this museum, and not a penny of it was allocated to those living survivors. And uh, I, I think that's I don't think that's the right way to to to, to view how you repair things. Yeah, you, you, yeah, these, just, the focus needs to be put on the people who went through it. Yes. Their survivors who were denied uh, opportunity to to build and to have land and and to and to grow their wealth. And so, with with a lot of pressure, uh, a decision was was made to give I think a hundred thousand to each of those living survivors, but but nothing to to uh, to their their descendants. Their descendants so, yeah. Yeah. So, so once again, we, the lack of generational to... wealth is once again, uh, yeah. you know, it's starting from scratch all over again. That's right. That's right. That's right. You know, the, the whole idea, when we talk about reparations, uh, it comes, uh, the concept of 40 acres of a mule uh, was something that when uh, Africans, freed Africans were asked what they want, wanted, they, they said, we want land. We want to be able to, to, to have our own property and our own land to farm on and to, to, and to, to exist on. And so in the Carolinas, there was an area that uh, where seized property was divided up and, and given. But of course, um, Andrew Johnson after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, he was uh, not in favor of yeah. what what was going on with Reconstruction, and he he brought in Reconstruction to an end and gave that most of that land back to the, the white farmers who had it in the first place. Right. Um, my my grandfather on my mother's side, my maternal grandfather, had eighty acres and two mules. And uh, one of those mules was named Rube, and I I think my grandfather just wanted. There were times when he wanted to kill that mule because (laughs) that mule cracked his ribs, kicked him, and cracked his Mm. his ribs. Uh, But you know, he didn't have practice. (laughs) They're very stubborn. (laughs) They're very stubborn, and a two by four is a good way to get the attention of a mule. (laughs) He would say. Fantastic. That I've leased, leased out uh, down there. But but it is important to be able to pass on some generational wealth. Yes, and yes. It's very important. Yeah, like you said at the beginning of the conversation, nobody received a dime of not just these last three survivors, but any of the survivors, any of their descendants, right. any of their descendants have received a dime from the insurance company or anybody else from Congress and so on and so forth. 
Um, so hopefully that can be a, a fight that uh, people can, that's still there and people like yourself continue that fight. Mr. Harold Fields, we want to thank you so much for being a guest on The Eclectic. Um, so much information. We ask that you come back and join us again and give us updates on everything that you're doing, especially when it comes to reparations and, and talking about um, the Tulsa Massacre. It would be my pleasure. All right. Thank you so much again. Mr. Harold Fields, I'm Donnie Betts, and this is The Eclectic. It's produced by Donnie L. Betts and No Credits Production, LLC. You're listening to The Eclectic, the series is mixed by Maurice Smith, a.k.a. Reese. Please subscribe to our podcast at Spotify, Radio Public, iTunes, Stitchers, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook at NoCreditsProductionLLC.com, Instagram, on Twitter at Donnie Betts, or at The Eclectic, the podcast. I'm Donnie Betts. Talk to you soon. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.